Good afternoon. I'm Suzanne Borden, Moment Magazine Zoominar producer, and I'd like to welcome you to today's program, To All Who Call in Truth, with former Israeli Ambassador to the United States, Dr. Michael Oren, and author and journalist A.J. Jacobs. Today's Zoominar is being recorded. Please type your questions in the Q&A box, and we'll try to get to as many as possible at the end of the session. Following the program, please visit Moment's website, where you can subscribe to the magazine and register for next week's Zoominar, Laughing at Myself with father and son duo, former Congressman Dan Glickman, and Hollywood producer Jonathan Glickman. Now for today's program. Historian, statesman, and Israeli leader Dr. Michael Oren served as Israel's, Israel's ambassador to the United States, as a member of Knesset, and as deputy minister of diplomacy in the prime minister's office. A graduate of Princeton and Columbia, he has taught at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown. He holds four honorary doctorates and was awarded the Statesman of the Year Medal by the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and the Dr. Martin Luther King Legacy Prize. Michael is a New York Times bestselling author and won both the Los Angeles Times and Jewish Book of the Year awards. His latest book, To All Who Call in Truth, was released last month. Formerly the Middle East analyst for CBS and CNN, Michael Oren has also appeared on the Stephen Colbert and Bill Maher shows, 60 Minutes and The View. Moving to Israel in 1979, he served as a paratrooper in the IDF and participated in several wars, reaching the rank of major. Michael Oren was named one of the 50 most influential thinkers in America by Politico, one of the five most influential Jews in America by The Forward, and one of the 10 most influential Jews worldwide by The Jerusalem Post. Joining Michael today is A.J. Jacobs. A.J. is an author, journalist, lecturer, and human guinea pig. He has written four New York Times bestselling books that combine memoir, science, humor, and a dash of self-help. Among his books are The Know-It-All, the Year of Living Biblically, and Thanks a Thousand, in which he travels the globe to thank everyone who had even the slightest role in making his morning cup of coffee. He is a contributor to NPR, The New York Times, and Esquire, among others. He has given several TED Talks, including ones about living biblically, creating a one-world family, and living healthily that have amassed over 10 million views. Please welcome Michael Oren and A.J. Jacobs. Thank you, Suzanne, and thank you, Moment Magazine, uh, and thank you, Michael. I am delighted to have the honor to talk to you today. I'm very excited. I'm a fan of your writing and also of your amazing resume, one of the most fascinating resumes ever that, as Suzanne mentioned, politician, um, historian, ambassador, Orson Welles cape holder, I just found out Greenskeeper for, at a golf course. So uh, it goes on and on. I want to spend half an hour uh, talking to you about writing and to, uh, about to all who call in truth, your wonderful new novel. And then we're gonna open it up to questions and people can ask you about uh, anything they want, writing or Israel or the newly appointed ambassador, uh, President Biden just appointed a new ambassador to Israel. So if people want to discuss that, um, but I want to focus on the writing um, as a writer. So uh, I love this book. Uh, congratulations. Uh, tell me how it came about. What was the inspiration uh, and what's it all about? Well, first of all, Shalom, everybody. <laughs> Shalom <laughs> to all the, the all our friends at Moment Magazine. Thank you for hosting us. 
so warmly. Uh, thank you, AJ. I've read all your books. Uh, I, 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 I've been trying to live biblically ever since then. I've tried to thank people for being nice and making my coffee. Um, I've tried to read the Encyclopedia Britannica. None of it works. I don't know how you did any of this stuff. Okay. And so it's terrific. You are, you are my hero. Um, and thank you. Thank you. And, and I add just one little small thing to that resume, which is actually the most important thing. I'm a father and very proud grandfather. I saw member five and a half, five and a half grandchildren I have. Uh, the half is not because of some Solomonic arrangement I have with another family. Uh, coming up. Mazel all beautiful. Okay, this book, to all who all call the truth, uh, is my, actually my fourth work of fiction. Um, people say, when did you start writing fiction? When, when did you leave history? When did you read diplomacy? It's just the other way around. I started off as a writer. I'm talking to you from my, the house in which I grew up in, West Orange, New Jersey. We're here for my mother's 93rd birthday. All my family is gathering. You'll probably hear them traipsing in behind me momentarily. Um, and uh, it was in this house many, many years ago. I was 12 years old where I came home with a, a very funny feeling. Not the funny feeling you expect from a 12-year-old boy. I sat down and wrote a poem, AJ. It was called, uh, Who Cries for the Soul of the Pigeon? You know, an adolescent unks poem. And I came home every day after that, wrote a whole book of poetry. Then when I, I got on a bus at 13 years old, went into New York City from here, walked into Alfred A. Knopf and delivered my book. Here's my book. You have to publish my book. Two days later, they rejected it. And uh, I went up to my room and cried. Um, I cry after every rejection. It doesn't, you know, it never gets better. It never gets easier. Ah, oh, it's a rejection. Nah, it doesn't work like that. I actually saved them. I'm that masochistic. I saved them in, in a file, which if you remember what the Manhattan phone book looked like, that's yeah. that's how rejections look like. But I kept writing. Um, I kept writing poetry, uh, short stories. I was always experimenting. I wrote, I wrote a film when I was 17 that I made into a very short clip that won the, uh, the number one prize on the w, WPS, uh, PBS Young Filmmakers Prize. Uh, program, you know, and uh, Channel 13, and those of you on the East Coast, and um, and that meant that I had to go to Hollywood, that's the Orson Welles part, uh, and uh, that was actually worse than some of the wars I've been in, um, working <laughs> with Orson Welles, not a nice guy, very large man, and um, and I thought I would go on to a, to a life in writing, and, uh, but I also had this other uh, obsession, if you would, I, I had to live in the state of Israel. Um, I had vowed when I was 15 years old, when I met American Israel's ambassadors to the United Nations, to the United States, uh, that I would be that someday. I was going to be Israel's ambassador to the United States. The guy's name was Yitzhak Rabin, and uh, I ended up working for him. I was an advisor uh, until his assassination, and, uh, and then took me on a different course of, of uh, studying Middle Eastern history, um, writing history books, being in government in various positions, um, elected and unelected, uh, and appearing in front of the media. So that, that's the whole capsule of the story. Um, but I never stopped writing. I never stopped writing. And I published my first novel in 2000. It was a, a uh, it is the best, best trilogy of novellas about the Negev desert ever written. You know what? <laughs> the only one. It's called Sand Devil. I loved it. Uh, another novel came out a couple of years later called Reunion about my father's uh, World War II experiences based on it. And then a long hiatus because in Israel, as in the United States, if you are in public office, you can't publish. You can write, but you can't publish. Right? And so I wrote and didn't publish, didn't perish, but didn't publish. And, um, and then when I came out of government uh, two years ago, began to publish again. And then when Corona hit, I began to write fiercely again. Uh, and I have, uh, this book is the product of that. 
Um, and I'll talk about my next book if you like too. But this one just came out last month, All Colon Truth. It's, um, it's set in a small suburban uh, community that's surprisingly just like the one from which I'm talking to you, uh, that um, in the year 1972, and I chose that year not only because it was formative for me, but because the early 70s for me evoke a lot of the present circumstances. If you were to talk to a young person in the early 70s about the future of the United States, they'd be very pessimistic because the campuses were on fire, the post office were blowing up, uh, there was Watergate. Uh, the country looked very, very bleak. And the book also takes place in a Jewish community, part of a Jewish community around a synagogue. It's the Judaism, conservative Judaism of the 1970s, which was very vapid spiritually, but which was uh, populated by some very towering figures. And there are, um, there are cameo appearances by Elie Wiesel in this book, by Shlomo Kalibach, even by, even by uh, Mer Kahana. And, and these were the figures we used to have back then. It was the last moment in American Jewish history when Jews were an ethnicity. Uh, you're young. I don't know if you can follow this, but the, back then only Jews ate bagels. That is amazing. Yeah, they weren't everything bagels. They were hard. <laughs> <laughs> bagels. No blueberry bagels. No blueberry bagels. That you know, we, we were immensely proud of Sandy Koufax and and you know Alan Sherman. Uh, we were an ethnicity. If, if you gave me a questionnaire, if you asked you know if I was Asian, white, or black, or other, I'd fill another. We weren't white. I. I played sports in college and someone had written on the wall, are Jews white? And underneath someone had written, yes, but, okay. Interesting. <laughs> wow. the yes, but back then. Today it's like, yes, emphatically. But we were, right. So we had a, a completely different identity. And I grew up in this town, which back then was half Jewish and half Italian. And there were a couple of wasps in town and we felt bad for them because we didn't know what they were. <laughs> What's your identity? <laughs> um, so the book goes back to there. It's a book um, about a, a junior high school a guidance counselor who's also a sports, account, a sports coach. You know, it's about adolescence, but it's really about uh, betrayal, lust, passion, and ultimately it's about murder. Yeah, I loved it. It was, uh, it was unputdownable, as they say. Um, it kept, uh, kept propelling me through. Um, yeah, there was, there's a lot for me to dig into there. First of all, my wife also grew up in a uh, Jewish Italian uh, town, and they called it uh, matzah pizza. Matzah uh, pizza. That's so you great. knew about that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. We everyone knew matzah pizza. Um, and uh, and secondly, uh, I just want to say I'm in awe of your prolificness because you have come. I'm a full time writer. Like that's my only job. You have about eight jobs, wow. and somehow you came, you come out with a book every uh, more often than I brush my teeth. So I don't know <laughs> how you do that. Uh, so tell me about uh, how how do you do it? How do you make? How are you so productive? Well, one part of it is I'm very I'm very disciplined. I just am. I just I, I structure my day in such a way that I'm writing that I get you know I'm I'm still uh, I'm an oarsman. Uh, so I, I row uh, in my boat, my skull, um, and I play some musical instruments and I, I make sure that it's structured in that way. And then also, you know, I work, I got to make a living. So I make a living in consulting. I actually, as soon as I get off this, this podcast, I got a, I got a consulting meeting, uh, go figure. And, um, and all of it's very interesting. And then there's politics and, and being on, being in the media and talking about politics, which I do a lot. I was on, uh, I think TV twice today. 
I'm yeah. talking about the Israeli government. So, you know, if you're ADHD, this is the life for you. If you don't want a linear life, this is the life for you. I, I don't, I can't function any other way. The creative writing experience is fundamentally, I would say, spiritually different than anything else. How so? Well, for one thing, I don't go to the stories, they come to me. A story will present itself, whether it's a short story. I mean, I know I got to plug my own books now. So earlier in the year, I published The Night Archer, which is oh, 50, uh, short I love story. that book too. And good enough to blurb. Thank you. You're on the phone. Oh, program. my pleasure. You're right I mean, over there. That um, was so creative because that the topics that you covered in those short stories, you know, everything from aliens on down, it was uh, it was a remarkable feat of imagination. Um, but please continue. You, the, the stories don't come to you. Whether it's a short story or a novel or anything else, it could be a play, it could be a screenplay, they come to me. It's like it's like knocking on the door, hello, oh, there you are. You're the story I'm supposed to write. Is and it in the shower? Is it while walking? What, how does it work? It could be anywhere. Really, it could be anywhere. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it happens like this. It happens in a fraction of a second. And my first reaction almost invariably is, nah, I can't do that. That's too wacko. That's too weird. Or that's too, that's beyond my capabilities. I can't do it. Um, I, I do have a, a novel coming out next year. It's called Fourth Cliff, which is set on an, in an imaginary island off the coast of Massachusetts in 1944-1945. And on this island, there are a couple of all the men have been taken off to war. Most of the women have gone off to war production factories. And um, left on the island, are a lot of old and very strange people and 90 Italian prisoners of war. And a policewoman, uh, Mary Beth Swan, whose husband's off with the Marines in the Pacific. So she's become the, basically the police captain of the island. And, and Mary Beth Swan has a problem. Not only is she viewed as a foreigner by, by people on the island, she, she's one after another, the Italians are being murdered by a serial killer. Mm. Now, ask me where this came from. <laughs> Hello? 1944-45, Nantucket, you know, something like this. You know, Italian prisoner of war. I have no idea. I have no idea. It is, but I must say, it is a beautiful process. It is like nothing I know. I mean, the closest you said it was meditative at one point. It's spirituality, and, and when I finish writing, I have no memory of writing. It's like, it's almost like being in a trance. And um, and I I I I'm a I'm a believing person, so I say a little prayer afterwards. I say thank you, thank you for the gift of creativity. Uh, I'm very grateful for it, even though I get the you know the the file that's as thick as the uh, Manhattan phone book of, 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 of rejections. And I get them still, you don't know, certainly in the world of op-ed writing, you get rejections all the time. Right. Well, that, that's what I always tell my kids, you know, failure and rejection. So important and just, uh, push on through. And I actually love the phrase, uh, strategic chutzpah. That's what I tell my kids to have chutzpah. And you with your, as a teenager, knocking on the door of Knopf, you had some excellent strategic chutzpah. It's funny. In, in the rejection note was it was in the rejection letter was a uh, a personal note, handwritten note from an editor named Ashbel Green. Do you remember? He was one of the towering editors of New York, and he said to me, "You know, we can't publish this, but keep going. Don't don't stop." And I kept up with him over the years. I was in Knesset <laughs> and getting notes <laughs> from him, and um, and I, every time I got a book, I sent him. You know, I sent him the reviews. I sent him this. He write me back. I'm so proud of you. It was, it was a, a beautiful story. He's passed away, but Ash Green. Um, you know, was an influence. He just was. Love it. Now, we were talking earlier uh, about inspiration and 
First of all, I'm very jealous that these stories come to you. It doesn't work that way for me. And I, I, <laughs> and I don't find it meditative. I find it like, you know, pulling teeth. But uh, so I'm very jealous. But you, you talked about how it, it's almost like alphabet soup, I think was the phrase you used. Uh, and you'll, you'll have all of these experiences um, and they'll just pop out onto the page, whether it's your uncle's table or, or a Japanese sword that's hanging. So tell me about the alphabet soup a little. It, it, I don't necessarily where they come from. Here's a story from the Night Archer, um, a story that a lot of people like called The Old Asaphagus. And it's about a homeless woman and her daughter who travel around in a car and they go from town to town, job to job. And life for the mother is brutally hard. She's had it rough. You know, she's had it rough, but she's a wonderful mother and she's a hero. She's a great hero. And she wants to shield her daughter from the outside, from the harshness of the world, from the, from the brutality and the cruelty. But every once in a while, something happens. And she'll say, what can I do? It's the old Asaphagus. It's the old <laughs> Asaphagus. Now, I had no idea where old Asaphagus came from. You know, it basically means the bum rap. That's the way of the world. And um, my, my father passed away uh, several months ago and we were cleaning out the attic, we came across a trunk. And in the trunk was um, items belonging to his older brother who had died oh, in 1960, had been a, a surgeon. And there was a laminated plaque in there uh, to the fellows of the old Asaphagus. And the old Asaphagus turned out was a, a sort of secret uh, comedy and drinking society of surgeons. And it was the, the fraternal order of the old Asaphagus. And I think I remember from when I was five years old that whenever something went wrong, my, my uncle uh, would say, oh, it's the old Asaphagus. No, scoot ahead <laughs> Six, <laughs> 50 years later. And that becomes the name of the story. And it, names, it becomes the, you know, the, the word that this woman in this, this homeless woman in a car uses to describe the brutality of the world and the way they sort of the shuffle it off too. You know, ah, it's the old Asaphagus. How did that happen? That's alphabet soup. There was, you know, there was a letter O that came to the surface there and I scooped it up. But every story in every novel is like that. It's filled with dozens and dozens of these very random memories that somehow uh, congeal and make sense. Right. I love that. Yeah. And you had also said at one point uh, when we were talking how characters just appear to you and you don't know where they're going that sometimes they'll appear in the beginning of the book and you don't know till the end why they showed up. It, I, it, it's something I've learned the hard way over the years. Yeah, in this book, to all call up to, uh, to in, in the new book about, um, about Fourth Cliff, about the island, the island's full of some very strange people and you know, were left over, they weren't drafted and they work in diners, they work on fishing trawlers. Sometimes they'll appear at the beginning of the book and you know, I, they'll just have a very, they'll have a cameo role, a walk-on role, just say in, in They'll maybe not even say anything. They'll just be noted in the crowd. And lo and behold, 80 pages later, they show up again. And they turns out they actually have a, a, a pivotal role in the book, an essential role in the book. Now, I didn't know this when I wrote, when I started writing the book. By the way, it's a whodunit, and I didn't know who did it. I didn't wow, know who did that it. that is fascinating. See, I, I don't work that way. It. Maybe, even, in, even to all call the truth, it's a murder. I didn't know who did the murder till close to the end of the book. Fascinating. And what I've learned the hard way is trust your characters. They have appeared to you for a reason. Give it time, you know, give it birth. 
and they will reveal themselves to you. And, you know, damn AJ, they almost, they, they always do. They just always do. It's a little bit of Star Wars-y thing, you know? It's like the, the force will be with you. <laughs> just, just let them be. So interesting. Right. Fascinating. Um, I, before I open it up to uh, questions, because I know people have tons, um, I just want to ask a couple of specifics about this book, uh, your, your latest. Um, first of all, I noticed that there was a cameo from the, uh, by the Israeli ambassador to the United States. So uh, was that based on anyone in particular? Well, what happens when he's there? A, a, a short, fat kid comes up and shakes his hand. Okay, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> so did you meet the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. when you were? Uh, well, I, yeah, I said before, when I was 15, I went to Washington with my Jewish youth group and I, I, I met the ambassador, Yitzhak Rabin, and I shook his hand. And I, that moment I made a vow. I said, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be Israel's ambassador to the United States. And, and I took it very seriously. My entire academic professional career was geared toward realizing that dream. Fascinating. Happen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I also, um, there's a, a part in the book which overlaps with the uh, Munich Olympics. And uh, so I wanted to ask, what were your memories of that? And also Mark Spitz, who uh, I had forgotten was Jewish, but he, he was- uh, How could you forget that? That was like the biggest <laughs> thing in our life. Mark Spitz is Jewish with a, with a great Jewish chest with the gold medal. He did it. a very chest. hairy Jewish chest. That's right. And Derry, the Jewish mustache and the whole thing. I think he later, I'm not sure. I think he, he converted. <laughs> but oh, really? um, no, it, it, the, the Munich massacre was profoundly shocking and traumatic. For Keep in mind, it was, you know, this wasn't all that long after the Holocaust. And we're dealing with a generation, certainly of my parents who had lived through World War II, many Holocaust survivors in our, in our community. And that the hardest thing was the way the German government treated it. Like, you know, the show must go on, you know, too bad. Um, uh, I think everybody in the Jewish community wanted the Olympics to be halted. They didn't. Uh, it was clear that the German government had fouled up royally uh, and sensitively. Um, and you know, it was very, very difficult for us to Munich massacre. Um, and I think it still is for people of my generation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, and then there was another uh, incident in the book where there was anti-Semitic graffiti uh, in the school. So what was, uh, what was your, as a child, were you exposed to a lot of anti-Semitism? Was there anti-Semitic graffiti in your life? So I grew up in this neighborhood. This is a working class neighborhood. Uh, I was the only Jewish kid on the block. I think my, my, my mother's still the only Jewish kid on the block. Um, and I experienced anti-Semitism yeah, more or less daily in various forms. And then I experienced it after that, being in sports, uh, being in public life, certainly being an Israeli, I experienced it. And, um, and I was afraid when writing this book, when I started it, that American Jews wouldn't understand it because I, I met many American Jews who never encountered anti-Semitism. And... And as events unfolded in recent years, I think you can say safely today that no American Jew would not understand a book that has a lot of anti-Semitism in it. Unfortunately, it's tremendous anti-Semitism here and everybody feels it. And um, so yeah, anti-Semitism plays a big role here. And it was uh, the fear that American Jews reading this book would say, nah, that didn't happen like that. I think that's changed. Yeah. Do you think the level of anti-Semitism, even though it has risen in the last few years, do you think it's lower than it was when you were a kid? Or do you no, think, I think it's, it's higher? 
I think it's oh, higher. Really? Yeah, I think it's higher not because you're know, numerically higher. You know, people are in the business of counting anti-Semitic incidents, which I think is probably a bad metric. How do, how do you count an, an attitude? But and and American Jews have have a problem that European Jews don't have, even British Jews don't have, and that is American Jews can't define anti-Semitism. And it's very difficult to 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 to, to fight against something you can't define. Mm. Um, like the New York Times comes out the other day with this front page uh, article about showing all the pictures of the, the Palestinian uh, kids who have been killed in the recent fighting in Gaza. Now, to people like me, that's blatantly anti-Semitic. That's singling Israel out. Uh, that's uh, evoking the blood libels of the Middle Ages. Uh, you know, two, American forces killed 250,000 civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan. You never saw a page like that. So by the EU definition, by the UN definition, that's anti-Semitic. But American Jews can't agree whether that page is anti-Semitic or not. And some American Jews would say, you know, good, we should have pictures like that. So it's very difficult, very difficult to, to define and, and, and fight. So um, numerically, I think it's much more difficult today because anti-Semitism has seeped into the mainstream and in the way it isn't. Then it was, it was, it was considered, I don't know, declassé, not done. Uh, I'm of the generation that was on the cusp of the quota system. Um, in the in the universities, your university, my university, um, and they were just lifting those quotas because they realized that they were unseemly. They're in they could they're indefensible. Uh, today we see instances of anti-Semitism moving into the mass media, even moving on to late night comedy shows, in ways that you know doesn't seem to bother you know people who aren't very sensitive to this. Um, today we have anti-Semitism uh, much more of the left as well as the right. So if we're getting it from all over. You have you know intersectionality where I was just reading this morning that uh, uh, by an incident at Stanford University, a big debate whether, whether anti-Semitism is racism or not, because racism is about power and affluence and Jews are powerful and affluent. So hating them can't be as bad as hating people of color. Uh, that is not a debate that took place when I grew up. We all understood that anti-Semitism is the same thing as racism against blacks, against uh, Spanish people. It was exactly the same. And that also enabled us to make common cause with them the Jews involved in the civil rights movement, because we knew it. Um, my father, Oliver Shalom, was uh, dedicated his life to this. Uh, he ran a Jewish hospital, Beth Israel, in Newark, New Jersey, in the middle of one of the biggest black ghettos here. And after the 67 riots, when all the quote-unquote white hospitals left Newark, he insisted that the Jewish hospital remain in Newark and serve that community. They were, the Jewish hospitals were also the first hospitals to hire black doctors for the reason that they knew, the Jewish doctors knew what it like not to be able to get a job. That's why they created Jewish hospitals. You know, they were the Brandeis of Jewish hospitals. They were created to, to give Jewish doctors a job. So we knew, we knew what it was like. We had our own, we had our intersectionality back then. It's, it's gotten much, much more difficult today, I think. Interesting. Well, this seems like a perfect segue to open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, who, as I, I encourage you to ask about uh, Michael's writing and his many books, but of course he's also touched on uh, some on Israel and Judaism, which I'm sure is of interest to many of you as well. So Suzanne, uh, did you want to read the Q's and, uh, and Michael can do the A's or uh, did you want me to be involved? So uh, first of all, thank you both for that. Uh, Mike, before we begin, which we'll start with a few questions about uh, your writing in your book, uh, some, uh, Peter Kessel wanted me to mention that your father was also a World War II hero. 
he was yeah. indeed a World War II. And I, I mentioned also that my second book, Reunion, uh, incorporates many of his war stories. Great. Uh, so the first question is, where does the title of your book come from? Um, and why did you name it this? Uh, so uh, for many years, as, uh, as a very bored Hebrew school student, um, and I was always getting kicked out of class, they made me sit in the sanctuary. And P.S. I never learned Hebrew then. I, I read my bar mitzvah and transliteration. <laughs> that was the, the vapid uh, world of, of American Judaism in the early 70s. It's gotten much, much, much more interesting and, and, and deeper in terms of the spirituality. And I would stare at a wall in the sanctuary and hanging on the wall were these uh, gold painted letters uh, with a quote from Psalm 145. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Uh, and if you're praying three times a day, you're saying that four times a day. It's part of the Ashray prayer. And to my mind, you know, looking back on that quote, it, it is the it is the ultimate statement of uh, of Jewish faith. I mean, think about it. this is a line that was written 3000 years ago. And the psalmist is saying that the Lord will be near to you if you come to the Lord in truth. What, a, what an amazing concept, both the 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 proximity of God, as well as the way to approach God. Okay, with truth, not necessarily with sacrifices, you know, not necessarily with uh, with wars and uh, or fires, but with truth. And um, I've dwelt on that line for many, many years. And in this book, which is about truth, it's also about untruth. It's about lies. Uh, I think that that quote was a very fitting quote. And P.S. It appears on the the wall of the sanctuary. Uh, in the synagogue to which my, uh, my protagonist, uh, Sandy Cooper, belongs. Thank you. And uh, Debbie Schubach would like to know, does your, does your book contain the story about when your shul, the Jewish center, B'nai Shalom, was blown up before Meyer Kahani would speak? I, uh, spoiler alert. Okay. I, ple I plead the, the sixth, which is um, spoiler alert. Fair enough. So, um, so in terms of the Night Archer and to all who call in truth, uh, I've put a link in the chat for people if they'd like to purchase the book. And we will be sending up a follow-up email uh, in a few days, and I'll have the links in there so you can uh, find out what, what happened in both the, the short stories and the murder mystery and to who all could uh, to all sorry excuse me to all who call in truth um all right so we have lots and lots of questions with regards to israel uh we're wondering if you could first give a brief overview of how this coalition government is supposed to work with the sharing of power between naftali bennett who's on the right and yair, yair lapid a centrist and what are some of the other parties that make up the coalition um there are eight parties in this coalition um, it's on a rotational prime ministerial uh, basis. Uh, Natali Bennett will be prime minister for two years. Uh, after that year, Lapid, the centrist, will take over. Um, eight other parties include, uh, on the left, Merits and Labor. Um, on the right, uh, the period, the uh, Gidon Sars party, um, as well as Natali Bennett's party. Um, and uh, also Blue and White party of Benny Gantz, uh, the former chief of staff of the army. My former... Uh, military attache in Washington. I know Benny quite well. Um, basically, you know, Israeli politics is small. You know all of them quite well. Um, it is the most diverse um, uh, coalition we've had. We've had right-left coalitions before, but this is the most diverse. Because the key to the whole thing is an, an Islamic purist party called Ram, uh, led by uh, a rather, I think, intrepid individual, uh, Mansour Abbas. So this is the first a coalition where an Arab party is not just a, a, a member, but a key member, it's a decisive member. 
Uh, it also contains uh, the largest number of women ever uh, ministers in Israeli history, 10 women ministers. It has contains an Arab minister, my dear friend, Asawi Frege. I'm delighted for him. Uh, so just fascinating. It's fascinating. Will it hold? Well, majority of Israelis think not. And the reason is um, it, the, the opposition now led by the Likud will table legislation uh, this week designed to break it apart. For example, if they table legislation that calls for annexing part of the West Bank, well, uh, Yair Lapid's, uh, not Yair Lapid's, uh, Bennett's party will have to vote for that, as will, uh, as will Gidon Saar's party will have to vote for that, but everyone else will oppose it. Uh, conversely, if the Likud were to put a, a, uh, a table of motion about civil marriage, we don't have civil marriage in Israel. Well, uh, you know, certainly labor and merits are going to vote for that. Black and black and blue and white will vote for it. Probably Yair Lapid will vote for it, but Bennett and and Mansour Abbas will vote against it. The Arabs will vote against it because they're Islamic purists. So it's going to be very, very rump, but very bumpy. Hamas could also break it apart if they start firing rockets again. You know, Ram, the Islamic purist party, will not go along with a harsh Israeli military response against Gaza. They just won't. And part of merits won't either. So my own feeling is if the government can survive one week, it'll survive probably a month. If it survives a month, it's liable to survive six months. If it survives six months, it's likely to survive its whole term, certainly to the rotation of Yair Lapid. Thank you. And how is uh, Bennett regarded in the foreign policy arena? Um, I think those are it, it, the insider track, you know, the Beltway. Uh, they know who, who Bennett is. They know that he represents a right-wing party, uh, that that party is opposed to the two-state solution. That party is certainly opposed to the Iranian nuclear deal of 2015, but then again, so are most Israeli parties. Um, and I think what you're going to see is maybe not so much a change of substance, but you're still going to see a change of tone. Now, I worked with, with, uh, with Benjamin Netanyahu for many years. His tone was to make things very public, uh, whether his, you know, his, his famous squabbles with uh, President Obama, uh, now his attacks uh, even on the Biden administration on, on, the, on the question of Iranian uh, nuclearization, all very, very public. Uh, Netanyahu was a man of the media, very much so. Naftali Bennett is not. Um, and so I think you're going to see things a, a lot more sort of sub Rosa uh, than you saw in the past. And, and that I, I can tell you as a diplomat, that creates that creates space. When things aren't public, you have space. I said uh, frequently during the recent Gaza fighting, I was on the news a lot. And I said, if I were, you know, if I were back in university teaching diplomacy, I would give uh, President Biden an A plus. Because what they did uh, in contrast to previous administrations was rather than coming out and, and criticizing Israel publicly and creating a situation where the Israeli government had to like force back and not be seen as giving into the United States, the president kept on coming out again and again and again and saying, you know, I, I uphold Israel's right to defend itself. That created Israel, for Israel, it created a tremendous amount of military uh, maneuverability in space and also gave the president leverage. So when the president came to Netanyahu, and I remember the moment very well because I was sort of there, uh, and said, okay, enough, you're stopping. Uh, Netanyahu had really no choice. Nobody wanted to stop, by the way. 80% of the Israelis were against a ceasefire, uh, including my own left-wing kids. Um, but Netanyahu had no choice because uh, Biden had, had navigated that diplomacy so deftly, so deftly. I was very impressed. Thank you. And to continue on that, um, how do you view President Biden on the international stage, both his track record and his potential? And is your view common to the Israelis you speak with? Um, well, I, I know Joe Biden very well. And, um, you know, I'm just sort of not self-aggrandizing here. Uh, when I was ambassador, we were going through successive crises. Um, the State Department under Hillary Clinton 
certainly Hillary Clinton herself, the Secretary of State boycotted the Israeli embassy, wouldn't take my calls. Uh, but Joe Biden was always available. And so I ended up logging a lot of time with him. And I know him to be uh, a very honest man, uh, a person who's deeply committed to Israel, deeply committed to the alliance between Israel and the United States. We have policy differences. We do, particularly over the Iranian issue, we have a deep policy issue. But it's, it's, it's sort of fundamentally different than what we experienced uh, during the Obama years. It's certainly different than we experienced during the Trump years. Um, and it, it has to be judged on its own merits. My sense is, and here I'm gonna say something tough. So, you know, brace yourself. Yes, uh, President Biden has brought a new voice um, or rather restored an old voice uh, to America's interactions with the world. He's set to meet with uh, Putin. I was just on Israeli television talking about that. Um, and, but there is one, there's on one point in which President Obama, President Trump, and President Biden are exactly identical. They'd hate hearing this, but it's true. And that's on the level of isolationism. America is withdrawing from the world. It's withdrawing militarily from the world. It is probably not in a position to project major military power elsewhere in the world. And, you know, it is the na it's human nature, it's certainly the nature of diplomacy, that when two foreign leaders uh, meet one another, if one is projecting power in the world, whether it be in Crimea or the Ukraine or the Middle East, he's going to have an advantage uh, to, the, to the statesman who is, who's, whose country is pulling back. Thank you. Um, oh that was tough, huh? <laughs> um, and, and then right before we came on, um, as AJ had mentioned, uh, the new ambassador to Israel from the United States was selected, Thomas Knights. Uh, what are your feelings on him as being the, the next ambassador? Uh, first of all, I'm impressed that you got the name right. I'll, I'll take no credit for that because his, his name is spelled N-I-D-E-S. Everyone said this is Nidus and Nidus and they can't get it right. It's Knights. Uh, Tom Nice is a great choice. He's a personal friend of mine. I, I think the world of him. I was just uh, texting back and forth with him. Uh, and Nice couldn't make a better choice. He comes out. He comes out of two backgrounds. He, he's uh, he's a banker. He's from uh, J.P. Morgan, but he's also was the undersecretary uh, under uh, during Hillary's period. And I had a tremendous amount of interaction with him. He's a person who's deeply committed, to, like the Biden administration, like Tony Blinken, deeply committed to Israel security and our alliance. Yes, we'll have policy differences. I have to say that all the time, uh, but uh, I'm delighted he's coming. I'm really, really looking forward to this. Great. How much power does Bibi still, still wield as head of the opposition and what's next for him? We don't know. And um, the long knives are out. <laughs> I'm already getting text messages from various uh, senior Likudniks who are vying to oust him. I mean, he's, he's, I don't want to, it's probably a bad metaphor, but you know, the body's not cold yet. They're already dicing it up. And uh, so he's gonna have an even harder fight on his hands remaining the head of the opposition. I think, you know, it's the role of the opposition to try to take down the government. Um, it depends how. And I think that some of the things that Netanyahu said the other day on the first day of the government, sort of comparing it to you know, saying it's a disaster and they're celebrating in Tehran. I think that type of talk is, uh, is deeply harmful to the Israeli political system. I think it's deeply harmful to our, to our interests abroad, to our image. Um, and I think it shouldn't be allowed. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Will the Abraham Accords be impacted by last month's war with Hamas and the new Israeli government? And is there any hope for new countries to formalize relationships? Um, the answer is no, it won't be impacted by, 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 uh, by the war. It was impacted by the fight, by the protests around Jerusalem because these are Muslim countries and they were very sensitive. But once Hamas started firing rockets at Tel Aviv, it ended. They're, they're, not, they're not on board on that, okay? 
And uh, we have normalized relationship with these countries. Uh, whether additional countries would join, all I can say is I hope so. It is in the nature of any new administration not to invest in the achievements of the previous administration, certainly if the previous administration was headed by Mr. Trump. Uh, so I don't know how much the Biden administration is going to invest. One thing I do know, um, and this I know, you know categorically, that if the United States does renew the Iran nuclear deal, other uh, states will seek to join the Abraham Accords because Israel is going to be the only country in the world that can stand up both to Iran as well as to Turkey. Turkey also threatens these countries. They back Islamic extremists. And so we become, we've gone from being an enemy to being the ultimate ally of these countries. And they know it. Um, is it true that Hamas sent incendiary balloons into Israel today? If Hamas fires rockets into Israel tomorrow as a response to the flag parade, who decides on the level of retaliation? And can the retaliation cause a problem for the coalition? Um, good question. Uh, it's important to note that the United States, that Israel, unlike the United States, does not have a commander in chief at its head. The prime minister of Israel is not the commander in chief. The commander in chief is the Israeli security cabinet. That's sort of a kitchen cabinet made up of security people, ministers. Uh, broadly, the cabinet itself has to decide on war. Um, the prime minister has a certain amount of leeway in returning fire because he just can't be in the, the cabinet all the time. Um, and yes, it will impact the coalition. As I mentioned earlier, if the, if the fighting begins to sort of snowball, uh, then the Rom faction will have a hard time remaining in the coalition. Thank you. Uh, down the line, in future American presidential cycles, do you think that the United States could ever have a president who does not support Israel? Eventually, I can't, you know, I'm a, I, here, I'll take the, the seventh, okay? Mm -hmm. We've been through the, the fifth, the sixth, and we're up to the seventh. The seventh is, I'm an historian, I have enough problems predicting the past, all right? And there are certainly um, currents and, and processes that are, are going through America right now and transforming American politics, of which Israel has no, no control. We didn't invent wokeism. We didn't invent cancel culture. We didn't invent, I don't know, intersectionality. We didn't invent it. Uh, and I think that if, even if Israel created a two-state solution tomorrow, I don't think it would materially impact those, those processes. So I don't know where they, where they play out in terms of American politics, whether there's a sort of um, uh, a reformation or a reconquista <laughs> against all of this, uh, a backlash against... Uh, about against cancel culture. Certainly the Republicans would like to have that type of backlash. I don't know, but you know, someone like Bernie Sanders um, um, came close, came close. He was you know, within certain shooting range. Um, Elizabeth Warren within shooting range. Uh, and they now have come out and had a very different position about, about America's relationship with Israel. Mm -hmm. And does it matter that more American Jews in the United States are less supportive of Israel and her policies than in the past? It is. It matters. Of course, it matters. Um, and there are debates about the actual numbers. It's certainly clear among young uh, liberal American Jews, uh, an alienation, a disaffection. Uh, Israel has to do a better job of reaching out to them. But keep in mind, we can, we can only reach out to a degree. We can't adopt policies that, that in order to say you know, to satisfy the demands of these young liberal American Jews, policies that will endanger our children and grandchildren. No one's going to do that. No one's going to say that the Iran nuclear deal is a good deal. Nobody. Mm -hmm. even um, though the majority of American Jews support it. Yeah. Right. 
Why does it seem the majority of Palestinians support Hamas and not the Palestinian Authority? And did this last round of fighting weaken the PA even more? It does. And, and I, for a year and a half, I was in charge of Gaza from the Israeli government. I don't wish to this on anybody, okay? And um, what I learned was that everything I know about, you know, human governance, <laughs> everything I know about humanity, you can pretty much throw out the window when you're talking about Hamas and, and Gaza. You have a, a terrorist group that uh, keeps its population in a humanitarian disaster status in order to you know, play victim to the world in order to keep that population uh, weak. Um, you have a Palestinian authority that's willing to fight Hamas to the last Israeli. You have Iran that's willing to fight Israel to the last Palestinian. Uh, it, it's a madhouse. This is Hamas that uses thousands of children to dig its tunnels. You, know, you, have, you have 100 kilometers of tunnels. Who dug them? I wonder. It's Palestinian kids that are basically enslaved and hundreds of them die. So you got to throw out everything you know about, you know, about the way human beings interact. And one of the things you have to throw out is that Hamas can starve its population. It can deprive them of, of all but, you know, three hours of electricity a day can deprive them of all but 4% of potable water, and it will win overwhelmingly in any election. And not just in, in Gaza, but in the West Bank, which is why the Palestinian Authority hasn't had elections. This is why Mahmoud Abbas, the president, is entering the 16th year of his four-year term. Uh, now, why that is? It's because Hamas represents values. It represents Islam, and they take it very seriously. Hamas represents uh, resistance to Israel. Hamas is, uh, is, is largely incorruptible, uh, whereas the PA is thoroughly corrupt. Um, the Palestinian Authority has received hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars in foreign aid uh, over the course of the last 25 years. And where is the aid? It's sitting in bank accounts in Paris, um, you know, Suha Arafat and all that. Um, Palestinians aren't stupid. They know this. They know these people are completely corrupt. Um, and so that's why. And how concerned does Israel need to be about need to be about Lebanon and Hezbollah? Very concerned, especially if um, if the Iran nuclear deal is is is, is signed. Um, Hezbollah currently has one hundred thirty thousand rockets aimed at us. Many are, are very accurate rockets, unlike the rockets from Gaza. They are hidden under two hundred Lebanese villages under houses. And should they shoot those rockets at us, we will have, our army will have to go into those villages house to house. That's what we train today. Our army trains to do that. And um, why would Hezbollah shoot at us? Well, here is, here's the scenario. Uh, under the JCPOA, the restrictions on Iran's nuclear uh, program begin to lift with the sunset clauses starting in 2023. Eventually, uh, Iran will move to get a nuclear weapon and Israel will not let that happen. We will move. Uh, but in the interim, Iran will have received hundreds of billions of dollars in sanction relief and business deals, which they will not spend on schools and hospitals. Surprise, surprise. They will spend it on rockets and missiles to give to Hamas, to give it to Shiite militias in, uh, in Iraq and into Syria, to Yemen, to the Houthis in Yemen. And when we try to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, we are going to get hit. And we're going to get hit like we've never seen before. It's going to make what happened a couple of weeks ago look like a very small picnic. And... Um, of this, I'm, I'm absolutely certain. And uh, we have to prepare for that in every possible way. Mm -hmm. We've really and brought this conversation down, haven't we? We were talking about, <laughs> talking about integration. We are talking about spirituality. Now we're talking about war and, and nuclearization. Yeah, we'll turn it around in a minute. We've become a little bit more, you know, elevated here. Uh, yeah, we'll turn it around in a minute. But um, we're all going to like go off and drink after this. Like, really. <laughs> 
what has been learned from this later war with Hamas? Um, and is there a possible solution to the Palestinian-Israel political situation? <laughs> They're two very, very different uh, questions. It's like, you know, how do you mow the lawn and whether you bring your lunch? And uh, so what have we learned? Uh, we learned that, um, what I've learned, I know what we've learned, I know what I've learned, that with every passing war, now we've had four, and I participated in them both as a, you know, a statesman, a commentator, and as a soldier, right? Um, our position worsens. Our, our response gets more and more accurate, but the international response uh, becomes less and less, um, uh, less and less sensitive to Israel's needs and, and more and more critical uh, of Israel's actions. The wars have actually gotten shorter. In 2008, the war was uh, three weeks long. In 2014, it was 26, day, 26 days long. We've killed fewer Palestinians. We've been great. We more, we've been more condemned by the world, and the Palestinian rocket fire has, in, has intensified, and the range has increased. Uh, so, are we winning? Or are we losing? Um, I would say that Hamas has won. Hamas has won a very big victory. Uh, yes, we may have deterred it for a while and, and knocked down a lot of its uh, underground tunnels, but we paid a huge price. So, the next war, what I've learned, is going to be shorter, uh, costlier in terms of our diplomacy. Uh, more damaging in terms of uh, what the what Hamas can do to us in terms of its rockets. Uh, Israel has to make a decision what it wants to do about Gaza, um, because the current policy, I think, is uh, in the long run untenable. So that's what I've learned. Is there a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian problem? Listen, I, I have an interesting perspective, because as you mentioned, I, I, as I mentioned, I worked with Yitzhak Rabin. I have accompanied this process from day one. I've been involved in many peace plans, including the Trump peace plan. Um, and I will say at the end of it, and I say this as, a, as also a person who has, you know, I'm involved in politics, still have political aspirations. I'm in favor of a two-state solution in theory. And I stress in theory because I can't think of any way in hell it's ever going to happen. And um, the Palestinians clearly don't want it. They've rejected it again and again since the 1930s. Right now, they actually don't have a government that's capable of signing on that agreement. Um, Israelis will never let the Palestinians have control, uh, security control over the West Bank. Uh, um, they will not, you know, outsource our security to the Palestinians. Um, it ain't going to happen. I can't think of any situation. And I, 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 I would like to think of alternatives to it. So a solution in the American sense of solution, the answer is categorically no. A solution in the Middle Eastern sense, which is much more amorphous and implicit not, you know, it's not what I call a Westphalian solution where two sides sit down and sign a piece of paper and draw a line. It's not going to happen. What will happen is something that is much more implicit. Uh, I'll conclude with this. Much of the talk about, you know, one state, two state is moot. Because if you drive up Israel's Highway 6, which follows the old 1967 border, uh, to your right, to the east, you're going to see a Palestinian flag. Uh, there actually is a Palestinian state. Um, it has you know, has some kind of borders, it has some kind of government, it has a police force, it has a flag, it could have elections if it wanted to. And the issue then is, okay, how do we take this two-state reality and, and make it stronger and expand it? Um, that is the issue. And we, that will require, you know, strong leadership on all sides. Israel, thank God, has one right now. Palestinians do not have one. Mm -hmm. Um, is the paratrooper unit considered an elite force of the IDF? And why was that the cho your choice uh, for joining? 
Oh, because I grew up in the 1960s and, you know, pictures of the paratroopers at the Western Wall, you know, with the tallest made of bullets, you know, you had to be a paratrooper. All the songs were about paratroopers. Um, I went into the Israeli army as a lone soldier at the time where they didn't know very much about what a lone soldier was. I said, I'm going to paratroopers. They said, no, you're going to artillery. And uh, I said, no, I'm going to paratroopers. And they said, you're going to jail. So they put me in a, a uh, like in the brig in a tent for a couple of weeks. And every time they say to me, are you ready to go to the artillery? I said, no, I'm going to paratroopers. And they said, you're staying in jail. And I think I was in there for three weeks and they finally said, I'll go, go to the paratroopers, see what we care. And I went to the paratroopers and I had a tryout and keep in mind, I had, um, I had come to the, to the Israeli army as uh, a gold medal winning athlete from the Maccabee games. I won the marathon. I was in really great shape. The tryouts put me in a hospital for a week, wasted me, like wasted me. And there were 18 months of basic training to go after that. You got to be nuts to do this stuff. And uh, it's amazing I'm walking at this point. And uh, I spent altogether 35 years in the military, um, both as an active soldier, an officer, and a reservist. And trust me, if they asked me tomorrow, I'd go back. I, I you know, kind of love the Army. The Israeli Army is totally different than the American Army. My, my, my father here, as, you, as mentioned, was a war hero. He was, a, he was a, for a while, a career officer. The American Army is completely, completely different. Uh, Everything you know about an army, throw out when you get to the Israeli army. Uh, what's more difficult, being interviewed on CNN or going on the Stephen Colbert show? Being in combat. <laughs> 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 Stephen Colbert is much harder. And I say this, much harder. No, it's true. It's the same game because it's a game when you're interviewed. Uh, the, the, the interviewer has a teleprompter, has all the questions. The producers have provided the question. You don't know what the questions are. And so you're improvising and, and he or she isn't. With Colbert, it's worse, okay? Because you have no idea where he's coming from. And there's two rules of thumb. Beside the fact that I, I genuinely like that man. He's amazing. Um, it, one is never try to be funny. Let him to be funny. Anybody who tries to be funny, you're killed. And two, come prepared with three messages. If you get two across, it's great. If you get one across, it's okay. You've succeeded. And I think I succeeded every time in getting this across. Mm -hmm. uh, but near misses, I'm telling you, near, near misses. Um, um, AJ, I wanted to see if you had any more questions um, for Michael before we start to wrap things up. Well, I thought maybe I could bring it back to writing a little yeah. and try to bridge the, <laughs> uh, bridge the two topics because it seems to me fiction writing especially you really have to get inside someone else's mind. And, uh, and maybe that's a really great way to build compassion and build uh, perspective taking. So do you find that helps you in being a historian, a politician, an ambassador, or are they two totally different skills? No, they, they, they overlap. Where do they overlap? You know, sometimes, you know, I write historical fiction. And, uh, and I use my historian skills to, 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 you know, to research them. There are stories in the Night Archer about the 14th century, and there's stories about the, the 15th century. Um, uh, in this new novel, Fourth Cliff, I had to re research what people wore in 1944, the way they spoke in 1944, what they ate, what the inside of a Mercury coupe looked like, okay? And, what it ha and how you operated the 1940 Harley Davidson, really. And you can find all this on the internet, that's the great part. Um, they overlap 
in uh, the best compliment I ever get about my history is that my, my history books read like novels. I love that. You can say that to me all the time and, and you've won me over. Uh, and though you know, you, I also choose topics that are highly dramatic, like the Six Day War. I mean, you got to work really hard to make the Six Day War dull, right, really. Uh, and then in diplomacy, listen, what is diplomacy? It, it's, it's, it's understanding human nature. It's sitting up, across from an official from a foreign government and understanding what she's saying. And it's not necessarily what she's saying. You know, there's a there's a there's a balloon over her head, or a, you know, there's subtitles above it. Um, um, as my mother, the 93 year old retired family therapist, always says, the presenting problem is not the problem. Uh, and so it helps to be sensitized to what the real problem is, what someone's really saying. And I think there, I'm drawing on my skills as a novelist. Love it. Uh... Well, yes, Suzanne, I didn't. Uh, I know that we have a strict uh, deadline, a hard out. So I'll uh, let you wrap it up. But I just want to say thank you, Michael, for for taking the time. I loved hearing your thoughts. And uh, and again, I am green with envy about uh, your productivity. I'm going to I'm going to start. Uh, what was it again? You um, what were the secrets that you, uh, you're very disciplined. You wake up early. I'm going to start waking up more uh, earlier. Working out. Should I start working out? Is that? Working out okay. is crucial. It's crucial for it. All right. Uh, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to help me finish my book. Go for it. Thank you so much, everybody. I'm honored and delighted. Just as, as we wrap up, uh, just tell us what's next for you. Uh, getting back into politics, more books. Uh, what can we expect? Well, I have a, I've completed now about half of the, my next collection of short stories. I, I do have this uh, fourth Cliff book coming out hopefully next year. If anybody's in the audience wants to publish a really great book that will make an Oscar winning movie, let me know. Um, and um, I will continue hopefully to make a living by consulting. But what I say this, you know, if I'm called to the flag, I'm always going to go to the flag. You know, it's a Cincinnatus thing. And, um, and I've been called to the flag repeatedly throughout my career. And it would be difficult, especially now with the grandchildren, really difficult. Uh, so it depends you know, how I'm called, where I'm called. Uh, I cannot say no. Okay. Well, and on that note, uh, we thank both of you so much, AJ and Michael, for joining us. Uh, and thank you to the audience for watching. Uh, we invite everybody to go out and purchase To All Who Call in Truth. We look forward to your next book. And we'll remind everybody to go to momentmag.com for next week's Zoominar with Congressman Dan Glickman and his son, Hollywood producer John Glickman. Again, thank you, everybody, and we will see you next time.